as individual members of the body. And I know one of my many weaknesses is that I talk very, very quickly, naturally. Um, and so if you are suffering from this weakness as I am speaking, if you could sort of wave at me or yell at me, and I will do my very best to slow down as I'm talking. And I, I really do mean that very sincerely. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know if any of you saw in 2008, there was a British television station that commissioned a study uh, that they sent, they commissioned archaeologists and scholars to make a list of the oldest jokes that they knew from ancient cultures. So these were not new jokes, by any means new jokes, actually, they're super old jokes. Um, but they were jokes that, they, they wanted the, it was a comedy show, and they wanted to see what is, what are the oldest jokes, the oldest uh, examples of humor that we know about. And so the oldest one, they, they made their list and they dated them as best they could, and the oldest one was from a tablet found in Iraq, what is now Iraq, uh, from about 1900 BC, so that's about 4,000 years ago. And it goes like this. Uh, something which has never happened before since time immemorial, semicolon, a young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. <laughs> We've been telling fart jokes for 4,000 years. Um, and, and maybe this, this speaks to the idea that our bodies are kind of funny. They're a part of us, but we also recognize that they're not quite all of us. C.S. Lewis notes in The Four Loves, uh, and he says there's different views of the body, and then he goes through them, and he says that his view of the body most aligns with St. Francis of Assisi, who called our, brother, our body brother ass, that is, brother donkey. Um, C.S. Lewis says there's no living with the body till we recognize that one of its functions in our lives is to play the part of the buffoon. Until some theory has sophisticated them, every man, woman, and child in the world knows this. The fact that we have bodies is the oldest joke there is. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't know about the fart joke, but apparently that's actually true. The, we, the fact that we have bodies, we're always telling body humor, body jokes. Now, some like Lewis have argued, uh, including Lewis, have argued that the fact that bodily functions are funny to us suggests the reality of a non-physical self. That is, we think our bodies are funny because we realize that it's kind of weird that we have bodies. Um, even those who do not accept the idea of the immaterial self or the immaterial soul must acknowledge that at least some part of the physical brain seems to perceive itself as different from the physical body that it runs. So here's some examples of why that is. As we age, our mental picture of ourselves may not fit the image we see in the mirror. We may think of ourselves as differently uh, than what we, we see. <laughs> the, the title of Christopher Reeve's post-accident memoir, Still Me, communicates the idea that our bodies may not always be congruent with the self that we feel ourselves to be. We know that we're physical beings, but there's also something about us that is invisible. And as Christians, we believe, spiritual. But this strange incongruence of spiritual beings and physical forms has led to a lot of debate in religion. Our invisible selves, our souls, are often motivated to do things by our physical bodies, our biological in instincts that we share with just about every living being. So our, our sort of invisible selves choose to tell the body to do things like go look for food or seek to biologically reproduce. Um, 
And these happen to be things that two, religi- that two functions of the body, that is reproduction and eating, that a lot of religions have given spiritual significance. Rules and rituals involving food and sex are found in many, perhaps most, religions. And like ourselves, which are both physical and, immater- and immaterial, religions view these actions, food and sex, eating and sex, as um, actions that have a dual nature. That is, that eating isn't always just physically consuming calories, and sex isn't always just bodies attempting reproduction. In many cases, our religious beliefs could be things that we hold in our immaterial, in our invisible selves, in just our minds. I could choose that I, I could decide that I believe in something, but not tell anyone. But when religious belief begins to direct our physical actions, and our physical actions be, uh, are, and those, dire- uh, those, phys- ah, sorry, those religious beliefs control physical actions that are connected to instincts that are so strong as eating and as sex, then if we have a difference in belief about how we should behave with those actions, then it can cause real problems in a community. And that's what's happening in the passage that we're looking today, looking at today. So if uh, you remember the passage uh, that was read, uh, looked at the idea of food sacrificed to idols. And there was this debate over whether it was okay to eat it or not. Um, and in fact, Paul's letter to Corinth is, is really, if, if you haven't read it recently, it's more like a response. If it was an email, it would have re-colon in it. It's, uh, it's not the initial email. It's writing back to someone who's asked a bunch of questions or a church that's asked a bunch of questions. Uh, the Corinthian church, as we've talked about el- uh, at other times during this series, was composed of people of varying religious backgrounds who've come to Christian belief through various means. And not everyone shares the same assumptions about how our, our spiritual beliefs should direct our physical actions and influence the way in which we uh, satisfy or deny our biological instincts. Does that make sense? That's a lot of kind of crazy philosophy. Okay, good. Okay, so things have gotten really bad in Corinth, and there's a church fight going on. And so at least some members of the church decide to write to Paul, who founded this particular church. Paul was the one who founded the Corinthian church, uh, to get his advice. Now, I'm not a parent, but I assume that some things haven't changed that much since when I was a kid. When my brother and sister and I would get into an argument, we'd run to mom or dad to settle the issue if we couldn't come to a resolution ourselves. But we also knew that mom was more likely to rule on certain issues in different ways than dad. And so if we were smart, we'd try to have the case tried in the court in which we thought would be most beneficial to us. So, uh, yeah, mom tended to favor Rebecca and my sister. Anyway, so, right, so you had to figure out, like, all right, yeah. um, so, uh, so that, that seems to be what's happening in Corinth as well. There's some people that are running to Paul, uh, but not everyone quite agrees that Paul is the right authority. And so Paul actually spends a lot of the first part of uh, his first letter, or the letter that we now call 1 Corinthians, um, trying to establish his authority, talking about how if he's not an apostle to everyone else, at least he is to them, he founded the church, etc. Um, but before we jump to the issue he's talking to today, it's probably useful to take a look back to how the church got to this point. So I'm mostly going to be looking at Acts 18, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. This is the, the story of the church in Corinth. Um, but I've also made a little comic strip, if you want to pull it up. Let's see if this works. Be exciting. It's a PDF, so we're having to jump. There we go. Okay, so actually, can we jump back uh, a couple pages up? Okay, uh, keep going, keep going. Keep going. Okay, good. Stop there. Okay, perfect. Okay, so at the start, so the guy there with the beard, that's Paul. 
Ebbe, and he's uh, preaching in Athens. So the, our story begins in Athens, which is in Greece um, it's still. Uh, and uh, uh, Paul is actually, he's been traveling around in Greece. Um, but at some point, he leaves his friends, uh, Timothy and Silas, and he goes on, and he's, he ends up waiting for them in Athens. And so while he's waiting in Athens, he looks around, and you probably have heard the story. He sees all the statues to the different gods and says, you've even got a statue to the unknown god, and he uses that as his sermon il- illustration to talk about the true god. Um, but he's really just waiting there. He's, he didn't really intend to go to Athens to set up a church. He just started preaching. Um, and then, uh, so, uh, but while he's preaching, uh, people start to get mad at him. He starts talking about resurrection, and that's something that's upsetting to a lot of the people in Athens. And so that he, he actually leaves, and he goes to Corinth, which is just, if you know Greek geography, um, well, it, it's close to, to, <laughs> to Athens. Um, so he goes to, to Corinth, and, um, and there actually, if you want to jump to the next one. Uh, and so there he's got two friends, Priscilla and Aquila, who are tent makers. And uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they own a small business, so they're making small tents, and they're fighting about that up in the corner. Anyway, but so that we also learn that they've, they're refugees, essentially. They've been kicked out of uh, Rome because the emperor doesn't like the trouble that he feels like the Jews are always causing in Rome. And so he's kicked them out. And so they have migrated. They've, they're refugees in Corinth, and Paul knows of them, and probably they're, they're already Christians. So he goes and starts staying with them, and he also begins building tents with them because he's also a tent maker. So while they're building tents, Paul is also going to the synagogue on Saturdays uh, to teach about Jesus. Um, but he can only because he's working during the week. He can only his his ministry is somewhat limited uh, by the realities of needing to eat. Um, and so uh, he. Uh, Finally, um, Timothy and Silas show up, and they're able to support Paul during the rest of the week. So he's able to go to the, the synagogue all the time and begin preaching in elsewhere in Corinth. So actually, let's go to the next one. Um, so this is the, the synagogue in uh, Corinth. It's led by a guy named Crispus. Um, and this synagogue is probably a pretty diverse sort of community. You've got uh, Grecian converts to Judaism, so people that are from Greece uh, but became Jews uh, in the course of living in Greece and hearing about the uh, teaching of, of, um, of God, of Yahweh. Uh, and then you've got people that were uh, kicked out of Italy and are the refugee community in this church. And then you've also got people that were Jews by, from the blood of Abraham, so ethnically Jewish. So you've already got a fairly diverse community. And then Paul comes in and he starts teaching this new doctrine that is really seen as part of Judaism, but a little different. He's talking about the Messiah has come and it's Jesus. Uh, and so that starts creating controversy in the, in the church. Um, and then as he starts preaching more and more, this becomes the, the, the divisions in this, I say church, in the synagogue. Uh, and so the, the divisions in the synagogue begin getting more and more um, sharp until finally, if you want to go to the next one, they actually, oh, I should also say, sorry. Um, they, they're meeting in the house of a guy named, in, the, in Acts, it's called Titius uh, Justice. He's also called Gaius elsewhere in the scripture, so it's probably Gaius Titius Justice. And he uh, lives right next door to the synagogue. In fact, it says his house adjoins the synagogue. And scholars think that probably what happened is that he had a big house, and this actually happened a lot in, in Roman times, apparently, and he gave part of his house over to the synagogue and actually built a wall maybe between his living area and the part of the, the synagogue meets in. And so they're all meeting in this area that was once owned by uh, Gaius, uh, but it's still part of his building, but he lives next door. Okay, so we can jump to the next one. 
Okay, so the people in the synagogue finally get tired of Paul talking about Jesus all the time, and they, uh, they begin to abuse him, uh, the scripture says. And so Paul gets mad, and he says, okay, from now on, I'm going only to the Gentiles. And he shakes out his clothes out then, and he runs out. Um, and so he starts preaching to the Gentiles. But um, if we want to jump to the next slide, I hope. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, sorry, let's keep back on the Gentiles thing. Uh, back. Okay, good. Okay, so... Um, so uh, Paul has gone off to the Gentiles, but they need a place to meet. And so uh, Gaius, the guy that owns the house, has actually become a Christian. And so he invites them all next door. And so the church starts meeting on the other side of the wall from where the synagogue is meeting. And by the way, Crispus, their leader, their, essentially their pastor, has also become a Christian. And so he's moved next door. And so the church is slowly like going one door over into uh, this, this church in Corinth while the synagogue is still meeting next, next to it. So if we want to jump to the next one. So they elect a new guy named Sothenes as their new pastor. Pastor is the wrong word, but it's the metaphor here. Um, and so they, they elect him as their synagogue leader. And then they get more and more angry at the church that's meeting next door. So let's jump to the next one. And so they bring uh, Paul to Gallio, who's the Roman governor of the province, and say, this guy's causing us trouble. He's teaching us things that are against our law. He's bad. And Gallio says, I don't care. I'm a secular leader. I don't really care about your religious disputes. Just leave me alone, please. And so let's skip to the next one. So the Jewish congregation, the synagogue, gets mad at their new leader, Sothenes, um, for whatever reason. Maybe he didn't communicate the case well enough. Maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe Gallio said, hey, remember when you got kicked out of Italy? It was because of these stupid arguments, these riots like this. So don't do that anymore. And so they get mad, and they beat up Sothenes. And uh, Acts says that Gallio, basically, I think it's almost literally he couldn't care less uh, that they're beating him up in front of him. Okay, so let's jump to the next one. Is there a next slide? Okay, so uh, Paul stays around in Corinth a little bit, and then he leaves and goes to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, actually. So the three uh, tent makers have moved on to Ephesus, which is in Turkey. And then Paul keeps going on, but Priscilla and Aquila stay in Ephesus, and while they're there, they're uh, beginning to try to set up a church. But this guy walks into town and starts preaching about Jesus. They're like, hmm, this is interesting. And they're listening to him. His name is Apollos. Uh, and he seems to have maybe heard about Jesus uh, whenever Jesus was actually walking around on earth. Somehow he's become a Christian, but he doesn't quite know the full story. And one of the things that he doesn't seem to quite know is that there's a baptism of Jesus that is different than the baptism of John. And so they teach him more adequately, scripture says, and he begins to teach more accurately. What's interesting is that right after this passage happens, Paul is off elsewhere in Turkey, and he encounters some believers who have the same issue. They've only heard of the baptism of John. And then when he baptizes them in the name of Jesus, they start speaking in tongues. So there seems to be, because these scriptures happen one right after the other, it seems like the baptism of Jesus might have some sort of spiritual gift effect on Apollos. And he starts preaching really boldly, and he, it doesn't say that he starts speaking in tongues, but it does say that he start, starts speaking really boldly. And he's heard from Priscilla and Aquila about their home church back in Corinth. And so they sent him back with letters of introduction to Corinth, to the, the church that meets next to the synagogue. But it's interesting, he goes back and he starts preaching to the Jews. So if you remember, Paul wrote off the Jews. He said, I'm only going to the Gentiles. He's following that sign, shaking out his clothes at them and all that. But Apollos is, it says, speaking with very convincing arguments to the Jews. And we also see in the first section of the letter to Corinth that Sothenes, that synagogue leader, Paul introduces as their brother. So at some point, maybe because of Apollos, maybe because his own congregation beat him up, who knows, he um, became a Christian too. 
So, uh, and, and it's interesting, Sophanes is only mentioned in that, for, other than the, the story of him getting beaten up, he's only mentioned in the first letter, in the first verses of the letter to Corinth. So it seems like Paul is saying, oh, by the way, I met your friend Sophanes, who's with me now in Ephesus, wherever Paul is when he's writing Corinth. We think it's probably Ephesus. Okay. Does that all make sense? Everyone follow that story? <laughs> okay. So all this is to say that whenever we talk about um, the first century church uh, and wanting to be like it, uh, that's a, a valid goal in a lot of ways, but it's, they're also, they, they have their craziness. Um, okay, so um, that's all we know that happened in Corinth. Uh, but we also know that they somehow, and we can actually stop the PowerPoint if you want, um, at some point they encountered Peter. Um, because in the first section, the first chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we hear about these different parties that the church is broken into. And so some people are of Paul's party, some people are of Apollos's party, and some people are of Cephas, so that is Peter's party. Um, and we don't actually know what each of these groups represented. Uh, we do know that in chapter 9, Paul mentions uh, that Peter is allowed, or Peter travels with his wife. He's making an argument about marriage. But he, he mentions that uh, Peter as if they know both Peter and his wife. So they probably had some interactions with Peter. We also know from Galatians that Paul had disagreed with Peter about the importance of dietary laws and circumcision. Um, and we, we, Greg told us about last time about the council that theoretically resolved all that, um, saying that all the Gentile believers had to do was abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. But like a lot of policy decision, that seemed to open a lot, up a lot more questions for some people than solve the issue. And so it seems at least possible that Peter, Paul, and Apollos um, are all talking about Christianity in slightly different ways and with slightly different emphases. All true, but with different, they, they tend to like different verses or different ideas better than um, the other one does. Um, Paul, we see from scripture, seems to be really interested in freedom um, and in the way in which Christ sets us free and gives us liberty. Um, in fact, whenever Paul reports on the results of that council that Greg told us about, he doesn't even mention all the dietary laws. He just says, the only thing that they asked me to do was continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I'd been eager to do all along. So maybe Paul didn't even really talk that much about the restrictions of the council whenever he uh, was talking to the church in Corinth. But in any case, Paul, Apollos, and Peter have all been talking to, um, to the church in Corinth, and so now they're trying to sort things out. And it's interesting that the things that they're trying to sort out all have to do with the fact that we have bodies, with eating, drinking, and sex, mostly. And also, actually, the, the way that the Spirit, um, the Holy Spirit, manifests itself in bodily actions, like speaking in tongues. So at least some of the church goes to Paul with a list of questions. They've experienced spiritual gifts, but not everyone seems to be able to prophesy or speak in tongues, even after they're baptized in the name of Jesus. Does this mean they're not saved? Is there something wrong with these people? And by the way, it's also getting a little bit crazy in the worship services because everyone's speaking in tongues at once and they can't understand what's going on. Um, so uh, what, what are we supposed to do about that? And by the way, Paul, Apollos maybe, because he just had this experience, seemed to maybe seem to be more inf interested in gifts than, than Paul did. Paul has to tell them that he speaks in tongues more than any of them do. So Paul is affirming that gifts are a good thing. Um, but... Uh, but, and also, Paul seems to have just abandoned ship whenever he uh, uh, abandoned the, the Jewish ship, whenever the Jews uh, started getting angry at him. But Apollos just went to the uh, Jews initially. So there's all this sort of controversy of who, who are they supposed to follow, what emphases are most important. Um, they've also heard that they're not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But didn't Paul say that idols were just pieces of stone anyway, so what does it matter? 
And do we really have to go back to what the Jewish Christians were doing and trace the history of every piece of meat that we eat? In fact, it seems like maybe some some Christians became, uh, and, and some of the, the, the Jews in this area, became vegetarians because they could never quite be sure that this meat hadn't been sacrificed to an idol. But how does that fit with the freedom that Paul keeps talking about? Isn't everything permissible for me? Or are you wrong about that, Paul? After all, Peter was an apostle, and he was with Jesus. And Paul, like Apollos, came along later, so maybe Peter is really the one who's teaching the word of God most accurately. And anyway, what does sexual immorality mean? That other thing that you told us about. Is it even okay to have sex at all? That is, should people even get married? Paul wasn't married, and he seemed pretty set on being single. But Peter was married, so who's doing it right? And what if someone becomes married, is married and becomes a Christian, but their partner wants to divorce them because of that, because they're not a Christian? Um, what should you do then? And anyway, uh, isn't this all the legality and the laws that Paul was warning us about? Shouldn't we have freedom in Christ? So... Paul, first of all, needs to sort out that everybody is playing on the same team, that he and Apollos and Peter are all saying the same thing and that Christ is the only one that anyone should be following, that they're all just servants of God. And then he goes on to rebuke them for the sexual immorality that's in the church. A man is committing adultery with his stepmom, and it seems like the church was actually pretty proud of that, maybe because it showed how much freedom they had in Christ or maybe how, much, how little the physical body mattered. Anyway, Paul steps in right away and says that if they had the idea that the body was worthless or unconnected with spiritual life, they're wrong for three reasons. First of all, the body is a, 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 a God's spirit lives in your body. So whenever we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives, um, it becomes God's temple. So just like God's spirit lived in the temple, it now lives in our bodies. So we should behave in the way that we treat our bodies. Secondly, God owns our bodies. They were bought at a price. And so we shouldn't use them for things that God doesn't like. And then third, and this is the most confusing thing, our bodies have in some way become part of the incarnation of Christ in a mysterious way that isn't, uh, may not be fully evident until our resurrection. And the last one is complicated, but it's the theology that seems to run through the New Testament. When Paul was in Athens, uh, back when he was talking to the people with his beard um, and the, uh, talk about the unknown God before coming to Corinth, he argued with some of the Epicurean philosophers that all human, uh, humankind come from one blood. That is, we're all in some way an extension of the physical atom. If nothing else, we know that our physical bodies originated from cells that came from our parents, which then came from their parents and so on. So we're all kind of generations of those cells that were connected to Adam's body. But through Christ's resurrection, we have the opportunity to become part of a new body, Christ's own. And Paul talks about just as our ear and nose have different functions and different identities, we have individuality in the body of Christ, but we're also all part of one being. And there's a sense in this and in other passages that this is something a bit more than just a metaphor. There's something almost fractal-like about the way in which our bodies are an infinite series of repeating patterns uh, in which we have members that are part of our body and then we're members that are part of Christ's body. Sex, as described through the New Testament, seems to be an interaction that intersects the physical and spiritual nature of ourselves. We don't completely know the way that this works. Paul talks about how it's a great mystery in Ephesians. Um, but, and so like any powerful tool that we don't completely understand, it's best to use only as directed. However, um, food, which is an interaction of our human bodies with the dead former bodies of animals and plants, seems to be more of a purely physical interaction. Paul actually seems pretty unconcerned with even the dietary restrictions delivered by the council in Jerusalem. The thing about not eating blood or food sacrificed to idols and all that sort of thing. But he does want, to know the uh, want the church to know that participating in a worship service for idols isn't good because it actually means worshiping demons. 
The food itself doesn't matter, but the spiritual worship does. And what's complicated is that not everyone in Corinth seemed to be able to make the distinction between worshiping through uh, through eating meat sacrificed to idols and just eating the meat. Remember that a lot of Christians in Corinth came to the church because Paul went out and preached to the Gentiles. And they may have spent their former lives worshiping idols and eating these feasts. And if a new Christian saw, a new, maybe Greek Christian, saw a wise and experienced one eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols, it might might cause this new Christian to think that maybe worshiping idols is actually part of Christianity and that it's okay, or um, that they, just to exercise their freedom, would join in and then find themselves worshiping the idol because it's too close to their old life. In uh, chapter 8, Paul says he'd rather become a vegetarian before he let that happen to a brother. And Paul deals with a similar issue in Romans 14. He says, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. If one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, uh, the servants will stand or fall. And if they stand, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. In Rome, it seems like some believers might sin uh, by eating meat sacrificed to idols, even though they strongly felt that they were disobeying God by doing it. Or alternatively, they might be turned off to the Christian faith altogether because they were maybe thinking of becoming a Christian, then they saw someone eating this idol meat, and they said, I can never be part of that. And Paul, in this case, urges everyone to look out for each other and not to do uh, things that would make it hard for others to live faithfully. But in the passage today, it's a little different. Paul is talking about a relationship, eating meat in the presence of an unbeliever. And Paul says that Christians should restrict their freedom even then, if eating meat sacrificed to idols is likely to cause an unbeliever to misunderstand Christianity. He says, if you visit an unbeliever's house and they serve you food, go ahead and eat it. But if they warn you that it was sacrificed to an idol, then you should refrain because they might get the idea that idol worship is actually okay. The implication for us today is that we have a responsibility to ensure that even unbelievers don't misunderstand Christianity because of the way that we exercise our freedom. Of course, this philosophy can quickly lead to legalism. And maybe, so maybe we should never eat meat just because uh, there's a chance that someone might misunderstand what we're doing. Or maybe we should never go to a movie because someone might uh, go to a movie as a result and think an impure thought. Or maybe we should never play cards because we never know if there's an impulsive gambler in the room who might be tempted back into the addiction. And and Paul seems to realize this kind of midway through the passage that we're reading today. If you read it, uh, uh, the 1 Corinthians 10 passage, it seems a little... Weird. Like, he's like, don't eat meat, but then who am I to judge another person's freedom? Not your conscience, their conscience. It gets confusing. And I think he's sort of stopping and, and maybe putting words in their mouth and saying, well, why should I restrict my freedom because of the other person's conscience? And so Paul says, okay, look, if you can't do it for the other person, do it for God. Um, whatever you do should be done to glorify God. So, yes, we should be thinking about each other, but also be thinking about what most glorifies God in this point. And if there's one clear way to glorify God, actually, it's to love our neighbors as ourselves. Um, And it isn't love if we cause anyone to misunderstand the nature of Christianity, whether they're non-Christians or Christians. We must act with the awareness, uh, we must act with awareness of how our behavior as individuals and as a church might cause others, both inside and outside of the church, both liberal and conservative, to interpret Christ. In fact, Paul's entire letter seems to be gearing up to uh, answer almost all of their questions with essentially one word, 
Um, it's in 1 Corinthians 13, the most excellent lay, way, love, which is patient and is kind, which does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Eating and drinking or spiritual gifts shouldn't get in the way of exercising love. So food in this particular story uh, doesn't really matter in, in itself, but it does, uh, it can affect the way that other people view Christianity. But Jesus does bless one meal as a way of remembering uh, his body and his blood. And Paul actually sort of refers to this in this whole passage. He talks about the um, about communion in contrast to the uh, idol-worshipping service. And most Protestants believe that the bread and the juice are, are physically symbols, but when we consume them together in the ceremony of communion, we remember Jesus' uh, body and blood, which is broken and spilled out to all. The crucifixion um, allows us to unite our physical bodies into the, uh, the, into the larger organism of Christ, in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. We all become one, a part of this new resurrected body. We know, as Dick talked about last time, that this is where we're going, uh, into this one unified body in which some of these differences melt away. Um, but it's difficult to figure out in any of these questions of what's the new kingdom and what's the current kingdom and how much uh, has the new kingdom come, whether that's happened yet. So just as in Revelation it says that in the new kingdom there will be no crying or uh, tears or pain, but we have to admit that they're still here, we have to admit that the, the new kingdom hasn't entirely come. And so figuring out where we are on that spectrum is part of the challenge of, of working out our, our faith. Uh, meals like communion remind us that Christ has loved us and has called us to love. And the answer, finally, in ways that we must work out with fear and trembling, must always be love. <laughs>